the three of them developed it into a series, and they thought that it might work better if it was filmed up here. So that's when Andrew called me and said, Karen and Fred are working on this show, and it's about how this precious culture, sometimes people take things too far, they go crazy with their recycling, and they're, they're really fanatical about their food and where their food comes from. And he had this long list of things they was, I think he was trying to tell me about the themes of the show, <laughs> but it really felt like he was kind of insulting me <laughs> and, my, and my town. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with David Kress, founding partner of Food Chain Films. David is a commercial, TV, music video, and film producer who has worked on a number of films by director Gus Van Sant. He produced a segment of the Kurt Cobain documentary Montage of Heck, and David was nominated for an Emmy for helping produce the series Portlandia. Yeah, it's, it's unusual. Yeah. Um, I have traveled a, a, a very odd path and I would I consider myself really fortunate that I hadn't had to you know permanently relocate I did do a year uh, of time where I lived basically full-time in Los Angeles because we had a commercial production company that uh, was birthed here in Portland but it got big like we had lots of national clients yeah and we were doing even when we were headquartered here we were doing a lot of time in L.A. and New York because there are just some reasons to shoot there. Some practical reasons like we didn't have a big enough studio to shoot the car if we, were, if we were doing a commercial for a car that we could get over the top of it and see the full length of it. But there were there was also uh, some of the more exotic pieces of equipment or people were in other places. I did get to spend time in those production centers and we made television commercials in Greece. We made television commercials in Spain. We made um, television commercials in Vancouver and Toronto, Canada. So it's uh, it, w- it was sort of a great way to start, and I got this broad base of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I always thought at some point someone's going to make you leave for some reason. Uh, and by the way, I still feel like that's going to happen. <laughs> but even when we had the office in Los Angeles, my plan was to make Portland, my home, like I would get the office in L.A. started, then move back to Portland, work in the Portland office and just fly down when needed. Yeah. Um, and that that is kind of how it worked out. I was able to sort of, you know, develop a, a, a career, but mostly stay here. And I, and I think that's a pretty rare yeah. thing. It has bonuses and it has some drawbacks. Right. You're not knee deep in in the industry, but yet i I'm imagining the quality of life for you because you choose to live here is probably going to be a little higher. Yeah, I mean, you lay down roots where yeah. where you live. And, um, you know, knowing the, the place as well as I know it, I know when I if I have to move, there'll be that long learning curve right. uh, at the new place. So I'm, I'm very happy here. And the other thing that uh, about uh, having worked around the country and around the world and you, you get a real appreciation for 
where you are here in mm-hmm. Portland. And when I did television commercials, I would often be someplace else because uh, one of the one of the early niches that that my company mined was celebrity athletes. Mm. And you often end up in a place where they are to film them because their time is so valuable, you go to them. Right. And in the off season, they're often in a place like Florida or Arizona. And you have no idea how great life is in Portland <laughs> until you spend a little time in Tampa Bay or right. um, Fort Lauderdale or Phoenix, and you realize, oh my gosh, um, I can't tell you how many times I've worked with a terrific crew. And like, I remember we were doing a commercial in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I really loved the people I was working with. They were awesome. Uh, it was an awesome crew. And at one point I thought to myself, maybe they don't know that there's better places to live <laughs> than Charlotte. But then I also had this weird selfish thought that maybe we don't need any new people in Portland, <laughs> so I'll just keep it to myself. You do get an appreciation for this place when you yeah. travel. The food chain films, that is something that you started with a, a fellow uh, Mount Hood Community College alumni. Yes, Vance Malone and I uh, sort of founded Food Chain Films along with a director, a very creative and senior director named Craig Henderson. Mm-hmm. That's one thing about the film business is we're all to some degree standing on the shoulders of the people who came before us. And I'm now luckily in the position to mentor people, which kind of seems crazy because I don't think of myself as like that veteran a right. filmmaker. But um, I do, I have new people all the time and I have to build teams and and you find yourself just in this position of offering advice. And it's very, uh, uh, I've been doing it now long enough that like some of those young people are now developed full-fledged careers of their own. And uh, it's not atypical that someone will come up to me and say, I used to think that you were a real a-hole, and now I really appreciate what you, <laughs> what you taught me. And also just watching them, th- watching them thrive. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've had people who uh, were interns for me 20 years ago who are, I see receiving uh, Emmy Awards. So that is almost more gratifying than making the television show or the movie or the right. television commercial watching those people get the same benefit that I did, which was someone mentoring me, increasing the sophistication and base of the workforce, and then my getting to stand on that person's shoulder, and now other people are on mine, I think. Yeah, and that has got to be pretty rewarding. It's almost like you know, watching your child grow up and getting an award. You've, watched, you've helped these folks grow, uh, and they're doing well on their own. Mount Hood Community College, that's where you went, and you went through the television production and cable and community television program. I know a lot of folks that went to Mount Hood Community College uh, and had a really good experience through them. It's sort of a great place. I mean, my my story is, is kind of odd. When I graduated from high school here in Portland in 1981, that was the year after PSU had um, discontinued their film program. Oh. And in the days before the internet, where we got our information was the library. And I went down to the library uh, maybe I'll go back a little bit. When I graduated from high school, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I had kind of wanted to be a filmmaker for, you know, almost forever. But it just seemed like uh, there weren't really any role models for filmmakers here in town. And when I consulted my parents about the notion as I was closing in on graduation, they reminded me that 
that it was a really unrealistic option. <laughs> and uh, they, they at least encouraged a strong plan A right. and make the uh, film part the plan B. And there weren't uh, a lot of options. There was the Northwest Film and Video Center, which is a f- fine school, but kind of a part-time school, with a, and it was part of the museum art school at the time. So it was really the focus there was fine arts and personal filmmaking, which didn't hold as much interest for me, and also the cost was high. And I had already been you know, spending a lot of time in college and had student loans. So I went to the library, and the few books that seemed like they would point to the best educational facilities for film were at the order desk or what's right. the desk the, uh, the um, there's a place at the library where you could look at the books right. under supervision but they were too considered too precious to you hand out to the out. public yeah yes. and so uh, so I remember pouring over those with some friends and there was a uh, the school in Olympia Evergreen mm-hmm. and and Mount Hood and the Northwest Film and Video Center and those were the choices that there were in uh, the Northwest kind of at the time mm-hmm. And having already incurred some debt, I wasn't super psyched about going back for more. So Mount Hood allowed me to go to a, a school, and I could work part-time and, and still uh, yeah. cover my costs. Uh, to this day, I'm on the actually the academic ad- advisory panel for Mount Hood, and I think it has by far the best two-year integrated media in the region. It's a very smart program, uh, a good mix of hand, hands-on and theory. And, but the other change is that almost every educational institution in Portland now offers a film program. PSU has reconstituted their film program, and I think it's very good and has some very good instructors. And there's programs at George Fox, at Merrill Hurst, at almost every college you can name. And even our big schools like uh, U of O and OSU have um, – had programs in the 80s that were curtailed. Both of them had limited their film degrees. They'd gotten rid of film degrees and they had communications majors. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a broadcast journalism major at OSU, which a lot of my contemporaries, uh, people that I work with now, that's where their education took place. Mm. You have worked in film, uh, TV commercials, and, oh, music videos, that's it. What are your favorite of those four? Do you have it? Yeah, it's, uh, the world has changed so much. When I first started, the real industry that was here was television commercials. Mm-hmm. There really was, there were a few out of town. I, if, you, if your listeners remember, there was a thing called Movies of the Week, which we sometimes refer to as Disease of the Week movies or disaster movies. But right. It would be something on fire or something. And there were uh, a short-lived television series called Nowhere Man, here. So when I first started in the business, there was a, a few pieces of entertainment that were coming through town, but it was far more interesting to me. And I learned right away, like at the pilot for Nowhere Man, I was in the office as a production assistant and I made a lot of copies. I ran to the office store a lot, which wasn't Office Depot at the time. It was just an office supply store and I'd buy paper and I'd reload the copier and I'd fix the co- copier jams. But when I'd work on television commercials, even as a production assistant, one day we might be using a helicopter to shoot um, uh, running footage of cars. And one day we might use a, uh, a, a kilo crane, which is a very, very tall uh, crane. And some days we'd be steady cam, And it was just much, a much greater variety of work. And I thought, is it coming to school or coming back to this profession a little older and trying to 
sort of feeling panicky that I needed to make up time, I sort of sorted out in my mind that television commercials would be a better way. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any way to understate the impact that Wyden and Kennedy and Nike have had on our film and video community because either working there or aspiring to work there has created um, this culture of achievement here. Oregon and Portland punches outside of our weight class in terms of the film and biz- video business in a, as an economic force, but also as a uh, creative force. Yeah, definitely. And they set the bar high in an amazing way, mm-hmm. in an in a inspirational way uh, as well. I think you could argue that year in and year out, not only is it one of the best creative places, creative advertising companies in the, in the world, it is often the best, yeah. um, especially when you consider the ratio of the number of people who work at that at that place versus the other bigger firms, right. and they and they're st- they're still on a regular basis winning the grand prizes or pulling in the most uh, awards and trophies of any of any place in the in the in the world. So that place has been very special to the growth of the film industry. That also, it's always struck me as odd. There was more going on here than in Seattle, you know, when mm-hmm. you consider that Seattle's twice as big a city and has basically kept that ratio going from when I graduated from high school. And even to this day, there's more, much more film and video going on here than there is there. And I've tried to figure out the reasons for that and with m- my colleagues. And there is one story that I'd like to tell you that I'm not, uh, I, I want to make a caveat that <laughs> We haven't proven this to be true, but one of the businesses that was thriving when I first started in the business here was the infomercial business that's now morphed into something they call direct response advertising. But there's a, an argument to be made that that uh, business was invented here in Oregon by the people who started the company Soloflex, yes. uh, which was a, a bench Mm-hmm. with resistance bands that offered a full home workout. I remember those. Yeah, I worked on a few of those. <laughs> yeah, I worked on a few of those campaigns. It was a real learning experience. I bet. Um, but also, it was just a weird convergence of things. There was a Cable Telecommunications Act of 1984, mm-hmm. and that was the first time that, because there were a proliferation of cable stations, before advertising had been sort of limited to 60 seconds or... Right maybe two minutes, I can't remember which. But in 1984, this, with this proliferation of cable companies and then uh, many, many channels that came with your cable package, they had decided for the first time to allow networks to sell the time they weren't using in bigger chunks, which allowed companies to buy a half an hour to sell whatever uh, that they had. Soloflex was one of the first, and the legend that I've heard, and, and again, I can't say I know this 100%, but it certainly fits in to the logic of, of what was happening with technology uh, at the time. Uh, the gentleman who started Soloflex took the product to Dan White and David Kennedy and showed it to them and said, you know, I hear you guys are the advertising geniuses. How should I, you know, how should I position this thing in the marketplace? They looked at it and sort of went through the processes and said, oh, it take would take a half an hour to explain to people <laughs> <laughs> how, how this thing works. 
<laughs> and um, and then I think that that was the light bulb moment for the uh, the Solovex gentleman. And I know there was a photographer who uh, early photographer who worked on that campaign and and said that look. And then a company was born that mentored a lot of people. Director Roger Thompson there and some partners there had built built a very big firm that offered plenty of employment and we put a lot of film through cameras Mm -hmm. and a lot of young people learned a lot of vital lessons about filmmaking there uh, that we all took off into different directions at different points in our careers. So Mm -hmm. another example of, you know, people sort of mentoring and setting the standard and, and, and creating the basis for more economic and creative opportunities for other people. Exactly. Now, when you are mentoring folks, do you ever recommend certain areas to start off in where you think that they're going to get the most experience in? Or is it more suited to what their strengths are? I do think that there's foundational skills, yeah. uh, like there, there are in a, a lot of uh, endeavors. So you can get those in a ro- wide variety of, of ways. When I first started, if you made television commercials, there was a widely held belief that your specialty of telling stories in short bursts, in 30-second bursts or minute-long bursts, precluded you from being able to tell a story in 90 minutes, say. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty rare that a commercial storyteller, a commercial director, was able to transition to um, long-form projects. It wasn't the, that wasn't really the case in the UK. Like People like Ridley Scott started in commercials, and then they'd make their way into movies. But in America, it was, you know, if you can imagine, yes, if you can imagine like Steven Spielberg, there's no way he could tell a story in 30 seconds. That was kind of the way it was. And, and then that slowly evolved and, and technology and the internet, I think had a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. But the first big projects that commercial makers evolved into long form projects on were pretty big budget smash them up action movies like Michael Bay was one of the first big successes that, that moved that direction. And I think in some ways set that evolution back a little ways because people thought, oh, they can tell longer stories, but only if they involve a lot of action. Explosions. <clears throat> yes. So, <laughs> But now the um, storytelling is, is a much flatter world. The Internet has done that. So you could start in any genre of filmmaking and move pretty freely into another one. For me, part of the reason I stayed in Portland was the music. When I was in my 30s and evolving as a filmmaker, as a film worker, I would get a lot of offers. A company from Los Angeles or a company from New York would come to Portland. I'd get picked up to be on that show and sort of be the local fixer or liaison to yeah. the, what was available here for them to use. And they'd, I would get um, a lot of compliments because I think they, they expected us to all sort of be lumberjacks. <laughs> so when we knew something about filmmaking, I think they were really surprised. So we had the advantage of low expectations. I think. <laughs> but um, they would say, hey, you're really good at this. Um, I've got another job coming up in Los Angeles. Would you be willing to work on that? And my experience was that I had gone early. You know, the music was everything here in the 90s. At least it was everything for me. It was one of those really crazy good places. I know people say Austin, Texas is a live music capital of the country or, you know, some people say Nashville, but certainly we were in the running for that, the, that kind of, those kind of platitudes because there was really something great to see here any night of the week. 
Um, and often you'd see a touring band on a Tuesday for five bucks at a really small venue. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was amazing. And uh, people would come here because they knew the quality of the local acts, yeah. um, the Spinanes, um, Quasi, yes. Hazel. Yeah, and um, uh, Elliot Smith, of course. Right. And a- anything Sean Krogan was in was going to be great. Absolutely. And, um, and the music industry was very supportive of one another, like, you would go to a show at La Luna and you would see the Hazel people watching the Spinanes people and, uh, and vice versa. It, it was just a great, if you were pretty broke, you could still go any night of the week and see a very great act. Yep. I'd go end up producing a television commercial down in Los Angeles and I'd pick up the Alt Weekly and I'd look for the shows and I would be shocked that there was, you know, there was the Troubadour and there was the, the space room in Silver Lake and the list was pretty uh, <laughs> pretty thin and um, everybody always thought of Los Angeles as this great place because of all those hair metal bands but there really wasn't much to see if you were a, a fan of, of good alternative rock music and there was so much more up here and that part was kind of part of what kept me here was that it just wasn't that great yeah. to see music anywhere else. I'm sure it would have been fine in some other places like Austin, but I hadn't experienced that. And this was the, the place that I knew uh, all the other filmmakers, so I stayed here. And, and then when the internet sort of changed everything, when the economics of music wasn't, we make a record, people buy the record, and that's how we make money, and we tour to promote the record, now it's sort of flip-flopped, and the tour is where the money is, is made. And then the records sort of the promotion to mm-hmm. promote the tour. Now, any place you live, you can see great acts any night of the week. I'm still sort of rooted to this <laughs> place, but the music was so part of the identity of living here. Plus, it's not exactly my thing, but the outdoor activities that are available here, you know, it just made this place seem very hard to leave. Yeah, absolutely. And you did work on a number of music videos. Dandy Warhols, Pink Martini, Slater Kinney, and Corn, among others. Yeah, yeah very yeah. lucky. I want to sort of say that this is that part of that community again. Like yeah. those videos that we did for the Dandy Warhols are still some of the favorite thing I've ever made 20 years later. And a hat has to be off to Courtney Taylor because all those videos were really his idea. Like uh, I did a number of them with with them. I still really like that band. Mm -hmm. But even when there was another director who sort of was given the credit for making the video, the idea was Courtney's. If there was like a cool little bit or piece of it, it was his taste and style that Mm -hmm. sort of made those things. And same thing with Thomas Lauderdale and Pink Martini. I loved working on that video. I think I did it for nothing, (laughs) but got to do it with a a cinematographer I really admire, Eric Edwards, who still lives in Portland. But Mm -hmm. Uh, when you look up his credits, they're on you know very big um, Hollywood films. Uh, I loved making those, but those ideas were usually someone else's. And in Thomas's case, it was Thomas and his peer group. And that video, I think, still really holds up well. And those people are the creative force. And you know, I see sort of my job is like delivering on their vision, helping to facilitate it. Yeah, and so yeah. I was lucky to get to work with all those smart people yeah. and those creative people. You're listening to Kink's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with David Cress in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. 
one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with David Kress, founding partner of Food Chain Films. David is a commercial, TV, music video, and film producer who has worked on a number of films by director Gus Van Sant. He produced a segment of the Kurt Cobain documentary Montage of Heck, and David was nominated for an Emmy for helping produce the series Portlandia. So in the years that you've been in the industry, you had to have seen so many different changes. I was looking at the amount of money that Oregon, it's like a, it's a credit, right? Sort of like a tax credit yeah. that they, I think in 2015, I think the amount was 10 million. It's up to 14 million. Um, and this is money that goes towards TV production or film production or that sort of thing. What have you seen as far as the cities and state sort of embracing this and kind of going, okay, let's let's get on board and let's sort of own this and let's try and get as much as yeah, we can. Yeah, it's, it's been evolutionary and it's been really great. And I think there were a lot of people who had long-term visions for this yeah. thing. You know, I go back to advertising and even that um, direct response advertising and infomercial and animation. That's the other leg of the stool that, I think all of this stuff has been built on yeah. is there was a lot of expertise and uh, a lot of infrastructure here, right. much more so than a city of our size really could justify. And I think part of it, that may go back to our remoteness. Yeah, right. Like, like there were cities like Boston that didn't have, which were very big cities that didn't have a laboratory where you could develop the film as mm-hmm. They were pretty adjacent to New York City, so going to the lab in New York City wasn't the end of the world. But right. we're really far away from Los Angeles, California, so going to get a sending your film down to a lab didn't make sense. So right. there maybe was a reason here to build a lab, and we had a lab, and that was was a basis. And there may even be a connection to um, the ViewMaster that right. um, I've sort of just sort of been made aware of, and I've been trying to sort of see if I could. Uh, circle that square, but yeah. I haven't quite been able to get that history yet, but I, it really is making me curious. Even though they w- it was single film strips, you had to process them, right, and it was a tremendous sense. amount of stuff that was created uh, for those. And that was done here, wasn't it? I yes. had forgotten about that. And sets were built, so that kind of expertise was sort of laid. And, you know, Will Vinton and even some predecessors to Will Vinton, there was always this family of animators yeah. in Portland for some reason and I don't have a, a guess at the evolution of why that was true, but they're a little bit like gypsies and filmmakers sort of are in general. Like there'd be a big animated movie like James and the Giant Peach mm-hmm. in um, in San Francisco, and there would be this small army of Portlanders that would move for San Francisco for the movie, and then when the movie would, would wrap, they'd move back <laughs> and work for, for Britain. And one of the people who is very key in my career is Shell White, who works at a place called... Bent Image Lab, which is a very, very creative company with David Daniels and uh, Ray DiCarlo. They've created this amazing animation company that does stop motion and all kinds of effects. And now they're getting into virtual reality and augmented reality. But, but Shell was a big influence for me because he would do, you know, his day job was making television commercials, but he, he's an artist and he wanted to make films. And, and even though his reputation was earned as a, I think, cut copy, he'd cut out 
paper and animate tremendously evocative images. He made a movie called The Paper Copier Cha-Cha-Cha, which was, uh, you know, won every festival in the country. But he was doing this this really odd brand of stop-motion animation where he'd cut out things and then, and then animate them. But he'd also make films on the side, and I had, was lucky enough to volunteer and help him on a film called Dirt that he made that had gone to Sundance at the Sundance Film Festival. It's a very innovative little film, and it's it holds up very well now. And I had helped him during this couple of days of production, but the process, the post-production effect process, took a really long time. So it was months later, and I'd sort of forgotten about the whole thing. And he called me and said, hey, David, I wanted to call you to tell you that Dirt got into Sundance. And I was like, oh, congratulations, Shell. And he's like, yeah, you know, just I really appreciate your helping me. And I was like, of course, you know, uh, you know, it was more of a treat for me to get to work with Shell that he needed me to work on his project. But he then says to me, yeah, it's, it's playing before this film on this day. Do you want to go? And I've never thought about going. I mean, I knew about Sundance and I was very, very uh, in awe of all the uh, American independent filmmakers who were making their names at Sundance. Yeah. I said, no, I don't think so. You know, a lot of work. And then hung up the phone, and then I thought for a few minutes, and I was like, well, why shouldn't I go? And I did go. Good. And I took a few of my colleagues with me at Food Chain, and it was real inspirational. Like, we were watching the films, enjoying them, yeah. and also at the same time sort of asking ourselves, that's within reach for us. Being in Portland outside in a regional production place outside of a production center, you kind of, as filmmakers, we all sort of grew up with a little chip on our shoulder. And we would try so hard to make our projects look like they could have been made at one of the production centers. Right. And we really turned the specialty of making a dime look like a dollar into a business that, that grew us and took us all far beyond our expectations. That's pretty cool. 2005 it was that Portlandia had its roots it was a series of satirical videos that Fred Armisen and Gary Brownstein had uh, put together under the name Thunder Rant. Is it true that they approached you about producing this this new show a few years yeah, later? Yeah, I mean, how, it, how I got involved goes back even a little further than that. Of course, I produced some Sleater Keeney music videos mm-hmm. in between some... Uh, film projects I was doing with Gus Van Zandt, a local filmmaker named Matt McCormick, who's an instructor at PSU now. Mm. Matt had an idea for a film called Some Days Are Better Than Others. And he was casting that film, and he'd done a, a, a really fun short, and he'd used James Mercer and Carrie Brownstein as the leads in that. And it, as he was casting Some Days Are Better Than Others, he kept coming around to the idea that really no one seemed any better to him than Carrie and James for the film. Mm-hmm. And he had a shorthand with them. He directed music videos for both of those artists. Yeah. So Matt asked uh, Neil Kopp, a, a fellow producer uh, and a producing partner of mine in the past, and I, if we'd help him make the movie. So we helped produce that movie. And Carrie was great in it. Uh, it was the beginning of, of my realizing that underestimating Carrie Brownstein was a mistake because <laughs> uh, she's a real renaissance woman. Right. There's nothing she can't do yeah, well. She's got a lot of tools in her pocket. Yes, she, she certainly does. And yeah. if someone were to tell me tomorrow that she'd invented space travel, I would agree. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. But, but she had been in that and volunteered to be in that. 
you know, a lot of caveats. I'm not an actress. Right. You know, I, I, you know, I hope, I hope I'm okay in the movie. And she'd done us all a big favor by being in that movie. So we felt like we owed her a favor in return. And I had been working with uh, Gus Van Zandt, which was a, a real honor uh, mm-hmm. and uh, a real fun job. Fred and Carrie had been making this side project, side, I guess I'd call it an, a comedy art project, on their own. And an executive who worked for Lauren Michaels named Andrew Singer, who's still my boss now, uh, Andrew pitched Fred and Carrie on the idea. So I think one of these cable channels that uh, is what we used to call narrowcaster would be interested in making this into a show if you guys were interested in yeah. So the three of them developed it into a series, and they thought that it might work better if it was filmed up here. So that's when Andrew called me and said, Karen and Fred are working on this show, and it's about how this precious culture, sometimes people take things too far, they go crazy with their recycling, and they're, they're really fanatical about their food and where their food comes from. And he had this long list of things. <laughs> they was, I think he was trying to tell me about the themes of the show. <laughs> But it really felt like he was kind of insulting me <laughs> and, my, and my town <laughs> where I lived that I thought, oh, this doesn't sound. I also uh, will readily. No going to believe it. Yes. I will readily admit that I did, not, I did not have the vision. I didn't see where they were going with the, yeah. with the show. But I knew, both Neil and I knew we kind of owed Carrie. Yeah. So we thought, huh, we should help. And. And he was working on Kelly Reichardt's movie and down in California finishing that. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of just about finished with a Gus movie. It just ended up that I was the one who ended up ha- uh, sort of, I guess I'll say, having to do it <laughs> and to pay back the favor. You got the short straw. And um, John Krizel, the director, ha- had joined at that point. Mm-hmm. Those three people and, and, and Andrew's sort of vision to mm-hmm. Andrew Singer, John, Krizel, Fred, and Carrie, their odd but very, very cool vision for the kind of show it could be was really great. And so I did the pilot for them, and then I thought, this was fun, but sketch shows had come and gone. Right. And um, I always say to my friends, everyone loves a sketch show after it's canceled. Like, all of us love Stranger with Candy and (laughs) Mr. Show, but almost always it's in the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. Um, and if everyone who loved them now had watched them when they were on, then they'd still, still be on. Around, yeah. uh, my sense of the culture was wrong, that there was sketch shows were sort of over and there wasn't a time for them. But these guys did it very different. And the topic and subject matter and the sort of the, the humor was gentler. Yeah. Um, at the time, I think the snarky Dennis... Leary humor was very, right. very present, and they had a sort of a different view of it. It was more loving. Yes, and those things together really made for an awesome show. Now, I didn't see it, but I did see that they were s- smart and cool and fun. And so when they called me a, a little while later and said the network has ordered the series, I thought, first I was surprised, <laughs> and then they said, we'd like to ask you back. It was nice to be asked, but it was flattering, but I still didn't really have that much faith that the show would be long-lasting. And I also really felt honored to be working with Gus Van Zandt in any capacity. So I called Gus, and I looked at our schedule, and I said, what do you have coming up? And he said, I plan to paint. 
for a really long time because <laughs> uh, we'd finished the movie months before that, and I think he was like, done you know, I'm, for ready a while. To, I'm ready to, to do some other artistic <laughs> endeavors that don't involve studios and lots and lots of people's opinion. Mm-hmm. And he had just fixed up his place in Sylvie's Island, so he had this really great studio. And the timeline for the show was really short, and I thought, why not? I'll do the show. I felt like they could use me. Like, they were kind of new as filmmakers, mm-hmm. but they weren't... Um, they definitely had the notion of the film, but so I, it was a real feeling of of helping and belonging, and you know all of us were like calling up our friends for favors. We didn't have a lot of resources to make the show, so if we needed more background, we'd have to figure out ways to get more. We'd call our our friends and family and tell right. them to show up for two hours <laughs> and be in the be in the deep background of a, of something. Or if we needed a a prop or a car, it was all it was pretty much, you know, it was made very lovingly like an indie film is Mm -hmm. where you're just using all the resources available to you and it turned out that people really liked the show and embraced it so they were right they were right after all I was an extra on three segments last night I was trying to figure out when it was it was in December I think maybe three years ago and I just remember hanging out well, something was going on. Uh, and who's the, the biker guy with the tattoos, big beard? He leather biker hat. Oh, you're talking about Jedediah. Jedediah. Yeah. Yes, I was, I was back hanging out with Jedediah, and we were waiting for something to do, and Jedediah and Fred were talking the whole time. And I just, I, you know, I, I stayed a, a safe distance because I didn't want to interfere, but I just remember thinking, he is, Fred is a really nice guy. Oh, yeah. He just no, no. Sit and talk the, with everyone. The f- I think one of the secrets of that show, the reason why, like, people like you would come back and yeah. be an extra for a dime was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for a stale bagel was uh, <laughs> that, you know, the culture of that show of that set uh, was really set by them. Yeah. Uh, Fred and Carrie and John, and they were all fun people. They were very dedicated to their vision and making their their show. And pretty exacting, like sometimes mm-hmm. it would be exasperating for me. But um, the set was never not fun. Right. They and, took their jobs seriously, but and it was they, fun. they genuinely loved that we all wanted to help. Mm-hmm. Like I think it really, you know, people say all the time that their film set is their surrogate family. But I would say if that was our surrogate family, we had a real fun family. <laughs> it seems like it would have been a really neat atmosphere to be working uh, under. You were nominated, is that right, for three Emmys? Yes, 2015 uh, three series. Yeah, 2016, 2017 for the Best Television Comedy. Um, that's pretty cool. Uh, Portlandia itself won a number of Emmys, Peabody, Writers Guild, and then was uh, had like 17 nominations, which was also pretty yeah, neat. Yeah, the Peabody is really special. Yeah. It's an award that you think of for kind of serious journalism. Yeah. But they do honor um, comedies, and they honor all, all different kinds of medium. But that was really something to be honored from them. And it, and it had such a, um, a small but dedicated following, and you find Portlandia reflected in the weirdest places. Like there was a Harvard Business Review paper done at some point that used Portlandia as, a, as, a, as an example of something that business people should think of mm-hmm. when they were um, when they were creating their own culture. So even though the viewership was rather, you know, small, it it cut this wide presence across 
really odd culture. Long tentacles. It yes. reached a lot of different areas, which uh, I think made it kind of endearing. And, and I know living in Portland, many Portlanders are, all right, all right, all right. But at the same time, it was really sweet. I mean, it, it was sweet. Yeah, people opened their businesses and yeah. opened their homes to us. Yeah. Uh, I feel like Portland helped make that show. Like yeah. it's things you're on are real entertainment properties. And the, the reason that they're being made is to have some time to f- some space to fill between the time the television commercials come on that pay for the, <laughs> the, the show. But that show was special and I think it'll have a long lasting uh, effect and maybe already is feeling it a little bit the mm-hmm. effect it's had on comedy and I think one of the things about Portlandia was that it's one of those places where uh, technology intersected with culture and it really couldn't have been created in a different environment I mean yeah. there's a show kind of like it in the, the Larry David show where there's uh, some some amount of improvisation mm-hmm. but the vision that Fred and Carrie and John had for the show which was three cameras shooting sketches that were filmed on location that probably wouldn't have been possible in the old uh, analog film yeah. world because at a certain point you have to stop and reload the cameras and also the film itself is quite was quite expensive in the process of processing it and editing it was was cumbersome Mm -hmm. and in the digital age we were able to just roll the cameras and a lot of the humor comes from the reaction and not so much from the from the person addressing the lines so it's possible to cover that all with today's technology and I think one of my all-time favorite things about Portlandia is the rats episodes that animated the stop-motion animation because I can't remember another time where improvisation had been applied to stop motion, which is a very exacting, mm-hmm. painstaking animation technique, maybe the most yeah. difficult. But that, that freshness of those rats, <laughs> characters, you know, sort of riffing uh, around the outline of the story and then seeing it created in stop motion is striking and um, and really, really funny and my, I think to this day my favorite part of the series. With Portlandia over with now, Grimm is now gone. What do you think is next for Portland? Is Portland, did these shows and Leverage and The Librarian uh, help to elevate Portland more? I know that going up to Vancouver, BC is a little bit less expensive in many ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a, there's an economic imperative to all this. And you've got the infrastructure base that was set that involved the animation community, the commercial lifestyle community that came from uh, television commercials. The reason there were a lot of television commercials here, I think, versus other places is that, you know, one of our big industries was sportswear and apparel industry. Yeah. And that's the kind of products that get sold through what, they, what are called lifestyle mm-hmm. pieces. And Nike and White and Kennedy, their branding work yeah. almost invented the notion that a company should brand its work. And um, so that requires a lot of that kind of communication background. So that's, our, that's the basis of our industry here. And then in the 80s and 90s, I think first started in North Carolina, states had realized that this business was a really good business and a way to diversify their economies. So they start, they tried to come up with tax schemes and plans, incentive plans to lure um, film business to, to relocate to their states. 
And we were late to that, and we still have probably, we're in the lower third of all states. I think mm-hmm. something like 31 states now offer incentives, and there's incentives, in, including California now offers an incentive. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, incentives are, are international. Uh, yeah. And uh, you mentioned that Canada has a really uh, generous incentive that draws a lot of uh, work to them. And we had a modest incentive. We started with a modest incentive and we grew it a little bit. And that makes sense because, you know, I'm a taxpayer here as well as a a film worker. And Oregon is not a wealthy state. So what we had to offer in terms of incentive had to be modest. And it was, I think, wisely, we offered a modest incentive. And it grew that business. And then that business sort of proved to be worth it. Like the incentives are, are largely paid back in the work that's generated from those very projects. Right. It's not given until the project's completed. And then there's the additional economic impact of the people buy lights and then they make things locally with those lights and the cameras and that kind of thing. So that has helped bring some people here. Mm-hmm. And then when uh, those shows came here, they were competently crewed up and uh, people enjoyed their experience here. Mm-hmm. And we have some advantages that outweigh the incentive advantages like it's pretty short ride from right. Los Angeles to here so for an a- actor it's not the terrible Cross long country. long way it is right. to go to Atlanta or or one of the other states that's offering a large incentive and you know it's a great place to visit uh, and yeah so I think now especially the other th- change that I think is new is that more and more we're shooting Portland for Portland. Once mm-hmm. people got the idea that there was a competency to make things, the infrastructure was here to make things, then they became more confident in setting the shows here. And yeah. I think that's been a plus for the state from an economic standpoint. Yeah. There's a couple of people who you know, had this vision uh, for this and have held it for a long time. And one of those is the uh, Senator Mark Haas, who was one of the original senators that said this is a good idea, we should probably think about doing this. And then um, Steve Oster, who is a great producer and produced Grimm and Star Trek The Next Generation, at a certain point he became our state's uh, film commissioner, Hmm. the the executive director of the government's film and video office. I I think the governor then was Ted Kulangasi. And Steve had a real vision for Portland, and he was also known as a great producer. So when he left the film office, uh, the next assignment he got was Grimm, and he was said, you guys should think about producing that here. And that was a very big one-hour yeah. series, so the kind of hardest thing there is to produce. And it mm-hmm. had a great economic impact on the state, but what it, the real economic impact that it had was going to be much more long-lasting, and that's that people got to see that it could get done here. Right. And that was reassuring, and now more and more stuff is coming. Uh, after Steve, the next film commissioner we had, he said to me, I was doing film at the time, he said, David, uh, you know, when a new film commissioner comes to town, I'm usually asked to lunch or to coffee, and they want to get a lay of the land, but I think they also want to sort of convince the locals that they're here to help. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I had my, you know, sort of what I thought would be my rudimentary film commissioner meeting with the new <laughs> film commissioner and they before Steve they had not been very good and it's one thing you sort of uh, that sort of dawned on me about government is government is people generated too like some people if you have the right people in it can be very positive and if mm-hmm. you have the wrong people in it can be very negative 
so with Steve, we had a great film commissioner. And then I think probably Steve helped point the way to our next film commissioner. He said, David, the way your incentive is, it would probably be better to be started looking for some television work than to, to do films. And I said, I, I'm not fully understanding that. And he, and he pointed to the way the, the incentive would spend out. And so big film would come and take a bunch of that, that money, and then there wouldn't be a lot of incentive to bring other things right. up. And he said, you know, if you did t- television, there's less of a spike in that spending, and it spends over a longer period. And right, it, it and more employs more people longer. Yeah, yes. that makes sense. And I thought, well, good for you. Go out and bring us a television. <laughs> so I, like, I'm a filmmaker. I don't really, I don't even watch TV. But he went out and did that, and yeah. that's when leverage came. Mm-hmm. And it was really smart, and it did have a really much better economic impact for the state. And also, I don't think quite at the time, the way Netflix had changed mm. our viewing, I don't think any of us were that aware of it. So right. one of the other things that digital and the internet has brought us is this whole new way we consume media. Consumers do it when they want, where mm-hmm. they want. And that means streaming. I don't even know if the right word for it is television. Right. It means streaming services and, and time shifting. And that means there's this whole new market for making for storytelling. And in some ways, it's been great. In some ways, there's still a lot of really terrible stuff on television, but the, <laughs> they make stuff for what people want. And so these streaming series uh, uh, have become some of the best things around. Mm-hmm. So we're in a good position to get that work. And um, even the Broadway video, Lauren Michaels' company that, that created Portlandia, is now shooting a, a season of their television show documentary now in, in Portland. And I'm producing that with some help of a, a, a bunch of other able-bodied producers. And um, and I think you'll see more and more shows coming to town. Like that. And I was just about to ask you what was next for you, and there you go. Yeah, documentary now. It's, uh, it was a show that started a couple of years ago, and it's one of my favorite shows on TV. And you can also see it on Netflix, but it's we're shooting the latest season here in Portland, and it's been a, just a great experience. We're, we're shooting right now. That's why it was hard to, hard <laughs> to do this. I'm glad we could squeeze him in then. Yes, I think it's going to be a, another really funny show, and it's going to help. I think it'll help add to the reputation of Oregon being a great place to shoot your television comedy. Nice. Thank you so much, David, for taking time and sure. talking to me and sharing a little bit of what's going on in the film and TV. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with David Kress. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating King's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands, Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950.